You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. And I'll be reading from 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. That's page 862 in your pew Bibles if you're following along. And I would invite you, if you are willing and able, to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 1 John chapter 2, 18 through 27. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things... And as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. John Calvin said that nothing is accomplished by preaching Christ if the spirit, as our inner teacher, does not show our minds the way. It therefore remains for us to understand that the way to the kingdom of God is open only to him whose mind has been made new by the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray that the Holy Spirit would illumine our minds this evening before we begin. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to gather together to worship you, to look into your word. And we do ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us, open our minds, our eyes, that we may behold wonderful things out of your word. May your spirit do his work this evening for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as the father of five young children, I've had the opportunity to read many children's stories to my kids. And many of them are great, stories that the kids enjoy that also might have some kind of positive message with them. Stories like the little engine that could or the Velveteen Rabbit, or one of my favorites, Where the Wild Things Are. Some of you might remember I actually read part of that book in one of my sermons several years ago, and I just found out this week they're making that book into a movie in the fall, so I hope they do a good job. You never know. Uh, But other stories, too, like Charlotte's Web or Chronicles of Narnia, uh, even Horton Hears a Who. Fun story with some positive messages to it. But then there are other children's stories that you read. And when you read them, you have to be thinking, 
Who wrote this? And did the author have any children himself? Or did the publisher really think it was a good idea for children to read this story? There are some children's stories that ought to come with a warning label. Guaranteed to produce nightmares. Or will scar your child for life. And as I read 1 John 2 this week, one of those stories came to my mind. It's a story called The Pied Piper of Hamlin. How many of you have read that story or heard that story? Several of you. And I have to admit, our kids have heard that story. We even have it on CD in our car. So they've heard it many times. But think about that story. What happens in that story? A strange man comes to a village. And at first it seems good. He gets rid of the problem. He gets rid of all the rats in the village. So far, so good. But then the townspeople don't pay the piper. So he gets a little angry. He goes away. A few days later, he comes back on a Sunday... And all the parents are in church. So you're thinking, great, it's a Christian story. But no, there's a big problem. All the parents are in church, but where are all the kids? They're not in church. They're at home by themselves. And then what happens? The piper starts to play his pipe. And all the children leave their homes and follow after the Pied Piper. And depending on what version you read, he either leads them off into the woods, never to return... They never see their families again. Or he leads them into the river where they all drown. Does that sound like a good children's story to you? Hey, Dad, can you read me the story? Sure. Hey, you all go off and drown, never see your parents again. Good night, sweet dreams. I don't think so. But the reason that story came to my mind as I read 1 John chapter 2 is because if you read that passage, you realize that we have a real Pied Piper here today. And it's not just a make-believe story. It's not just a fable, a fairy tale, a legend. It's not just somebody trying to lead our children off into the woods. But we have the Antichrist here today who's trying to lead not just children, but parents and grandparents and any who will follow, not into the woods, but straight to the pit of hell, to eternal damnation and destruction. And what John writes for us here in 1 John chapter 2, he explains for us how we can keep from being led astray by the Antichrist. And he lays out three important things for us. He tells us we need to be aware that they're here. We need to be right about Jesus. And that's the main point we'll focus on this evening. But there's also a third point. We also need to be guided by the Word and the Spirit. So the first thing... ...that John points out for us is verse 18... ...is that the Antichrists are here. Be aware, they are here and they are different. Look at verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming... ...even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They are here. Now it's been said, knowing the enemy is half the battle... The first thing we need to know is that the Antichrists are here. John says, this is how we know it's the last hour. The coming of the Antichrist was supposed to be a sign that the end times were coming. What is the last hour? Very simply, the last hour is the time between Christ's first coming. When he was born and he lived and he died and was buried and rose again and ascended into heaven. And his second coming, the time in between. 
And that's the time we live in today. And John's writing to give us a sense of urgency, a sense of importance. Don't waste your life. Don't be led astray by the Antichrist. Christ is coming again. Be aware they are here. Also be aware of what they are trying to do. In verse 26, we're told that they are trying to lead you astray. So like the Pied Piper, the Antichrists are playing a tune, trying to get you to follow them straight to hell. Be aware they are here. But also be aware that they are different. They are different both in what they do and in what they teach. First of all, they're different in what they teach. See, they're playing a tune, but it's a tune that does not line up with what the Bible has to say about Jesus Christ. And verse 22 makes it clear who and what the Antichrist is. Who is the liar? It's the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. So here John is not referring to that final Antichrist that may come one day, a supreme evil being that might usher in the end times. If you look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it speaks of the man of lawlessness. But that's not what John's talking about here. He is saying now that the spirit of the Antichrist is here today, and it characterizes these false teachers who are trying to lead you astray, trying to destroy your faith. But they're not some outright pagan opponent that you would immediately recognize. They're trying to destroy the faith from within, appearing to be Christians, appearing to be teachers. And John says you recognize them because they deny that Jesus is the Christ. They deny the Father and the Son. They're denying the Messiah, the the incarnation, the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. So they are different in what they teach. They're also different in what they do. John tells us that the Antichrist go out Because they do not belong. So they do not remain within the church. They go out. And this hints at two important doctrines in our church that I'll just mention briefly here. It's not the main point of the passage, but this point that they go out and they do not remain reminds us of two important doctrines. The first one is the perseverance of the saints. Or you might say eternal security. Once saved, always saved. John says true Christians remain to the end. They will not be led astray. But John's not saying that salvation is the reward of endurance. What he's saying is that endurance is the hallmark of the saved. It's a sign that you're truly saved. If you are a true Christian, you will endure. You will not finally be led astray. John in his gospel of John wrote in chapter 10, he recorded the words of Jesus where Jesus said, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hands. Perseverance of the saints. True Christians will remain till the end. Second doctrine that it hints at is the nature of the church. That there's a distinction between the visible church and the invisible church. Now, I don't know if you've heard those terms before, but it's very simple. The visible church is referring to the church that we can see. Members, attenders here at Westminster, part of the visible church. The invisible church are all those who are truly saved, those that God knows are his. And only the Lord really knows all those who are truly his. And so what John is indicating for us here when he says that the false teachers go out, they don't remain because they didn't belong, he's saying that not everyone who's part of the visible church 
is truly saved. Now this should not surprise us. But at the same time, it should not give us a false hope or assurance. Our salvation should not be based on the fact that we are a member of a church or that we attend church. Our salvation is based upon Jesus Christ alone and what he has accomplished for us on the cross. At the same time, we should not try to guess who is a Christian and who is not a Christian. That's up to the Lord. Only he knows those who are his. But what we should do is we should encourage and exhort one another each day to continue in daily repentance, to continue to trust in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners, to preach the gospel in love to one another and to ourselves. John says the Antichrists are different. They're different in what they teach. They're different in what they do. They don't remain because they do not belong. They are not truly saved. True Christians do remain because they have an anointing from the Holy One and they know the truth. He says in verse 20 and 21. Well, what is this anointing that we have? It's very simply the gift of the Holy Spirit. True believers have the Holy Spirit. You have the Spirit of the living God living within you at all times. He's with you wherever you go, and He will keep you to the end. And He will guide you into all truth. We'll come back to that at the end. But for now, be aware. If you want to keep the Antichrist from leading you astray, be aware. They are here. There are false teachers here today who are trying to lead you astray from within the church. They are different in what they teach and what they do. But secondly, and the main point that John is getting across in this passage, is that if we want to keep the Antichrist from leading us astray, and if we want to be assured of our salvation, we need to be right about Jesus. We need to believe in Jesus Christ as he is offered in the Bible, in the gospel. You know, you have heard of one issue politics. Well, this is the one issue Christianity or one issue religion. It's the watershed issue. It's the deal breaker. You must be right about Jesus. Listen to what he says again in verse 22. Who is the liar? It's the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So what John is teaching us here is that this is not just another lie. This is the lie. And this is not just a theology that's a little bit defective. This is a theology that's diabolical. It's from Satan, of the devil. Jesus said in John chapter 8 that the devil is the father of lies, a liar from the beginning. So this is a lie straight from the pit of hell meant to bring you to hell. So you must see it for what it is. These false teachers, the spirit of the Antichrist, they are trying to lead you astray. They are trying to take you to hell with them. Remember that. Now, in this day and age, it's so easy for us to listen to any teacher. You know, there's easy access to sermons from other pastors, to books, to blogs. You can get access so easily today. But what you need to be careful of is who you are listening to. And you need to make sure that they are right about Jesus. They may talk about following the way of Jesus, but do they deny the gospel? Do they deny the atonement? So pay careful attention to who you are listening to. In 2 John, chapter 7, or 2 John verse 7, John's next letter over, 
he will tell us not to participate in their wicked work. We should not be partners with them. Do not share in or promote their wicked work. So be careful, beloved, who you listen to, who you read. Make sure they are right about Jesus. The number one fundamental test of a genuine believer is your view of Jesus Christ. If you do not want to be led astray by the Antichrist, then make sure you are right about Jesus. What do you believe about Jesus? This is a question that Jesus himself asked his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. He said, who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He was saying that Jesus is the Messiah, the only Savior. He came not to lead people astray. He's not like the Pied Piper. He came to save his children, to give his life as a ransom, to lead them home. In John chapter 8, when Jesus was having a discussion with the people and he's teaching them, he says to them, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Do you see how essential this is? God's son, who is the truth, who always spoke the truth, every word he ever said was and is true. He says there, if you don't believe I am he, you will die in your sins. Do you know what their response was? Their response was, well, who are you? They recognize how important this matter is. If I don't believe Jesus is who he says he is, I'm going to die in my sins. So their question is, who are you? And Jesus says, just what I've been telling you from the beginning, which is what? He says, I am the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, the one sent by the Father, the light of the world. And then he gives them some further clarification in John 8. He says, when you've lifted up the Son of Man... You will know that I am he. Referring to his death and to his resurrection. And then that conversation will will end with Jesus' famous words where he says, Before Abraham was, I am. And what he's saying there is not just that he's eternal, but that he is the eternal God. And they got it. They understood because they picked up stones to stone him because they said, That's blasphemy. You're saying you're God, which is exactly what he was saying. Make sure you are right about Jesus. This is the deal breaker, the watershed issue. So can I ask you tonight, in love, what do you believe about Jesus? Not what does Westminster believe about Jesus. Not what do your parents believe about Jesus. Not what does your spouse believe about Jesus. Not what do your children believe about Jesus. What do you believe about Jesus? First, do you believe that you are a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure, without hope save in his sovereign mercy? Do you believe that? And do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to you in the gospel? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Not just in your head, but in your heart. Not just do you know it is true, just that you've heard it all of your life, but are you truly trusting in Jesus Christ as the only one who can take away your sins? Again, back to John 10, 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Have you heard the voice of the Savior? Are you following after 
him? Are you following him home? Do you believe that Jesus is God, that he died for you? Does it show up in your life? Is it reflected in how you live? Is it reflected in what you love, in your affections? Verse 23, John tells us that if you deny the Father, if you deny Jesus Christ, you have denied the Father. If you deny Jesus Christ, you are not reconciled to God. You do not have fellowship with God. You are not a Christian. And you will be damned to hell. If you get this wrong, if you are wrong about Jesus, nothing else matters. If you get that wrong, you are damned to hell. You will die in your sins. But if you get that right, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you will not be led astray. You will have the Father. You will persevere till the end. If you truly believe that Jesus Christ is God, that he died for you, it will transform your life. You will no longer live for yourself, but you'll live for him who loved you and gave himself for you. It will change everything about your life. It will change how you spend your money. It will change how you give your money. It will change the way you dress. It will, young people. If you believe Jesus Christ died for your sins, then you won't dress in a way that would cause sin for him to die for. It will change how you use your time. It will change how you work. It will change how you relate to your parents. It will change how you relate to your children. It will change what you do for recreation and leisure. It will change what you watch, what you listen to. If you believe that Jesus Christ is God, that he died for you, that he's coming again, it will transform your life in every way. 100 years after Jesus Christ preached the Sermon on the Mount, a man approached the great church father Tertullian with a problem. And he was having a discussion with Tertullian about his business interests, his, his uh, source of living, and his Christian beliefs. They were in conflict. And he was trying to resolve this with Tertullian. And he ended by asking Tertullian, what can I do? I must live. And Tertullian replied, must you? Must you? What's more important? The gospel of Jesus Christ will transform your life such that it becomes even more important than living. That's why Paul could say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When you understand the gospel, when you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, it transforms all of your life. It transforms how you treat other people, how you view your neighbors, how you view your coworkers, people that you meet. See, if you believe on Jesus Christ, you recognize it's only by the mercy of God. And it's not just for your own good, for your own salvation. But it's for you to be an ambassador for Christ, to take this great message of salvation, of reconciliation with the God who made you, to others, to everyone that you meet. One of my favorite stories, passages in the Bible is is John chapter 1. And I know I say that almost every time I preach, but the Bible is just full of incredible stories and truths. But John chapter 1... Verse 40, uh, this is the first calling of the disciples. The calling of the first disciples. And this is what it says, John 1, 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. 
the first thing he did was go get his brother and bring him to Jesus. You know, I have lately been telling everybody that I'm not going to be here next weekend because I'm going to the Final Four in Michigan. In fact, this morning I talked to at least three people here at church about it. And just now I figured out a way to work it into my sermon. So now you all know. We tell people about things that we're excited about. About things that we look forward to. Things that are important to us. Who are you telling about Jesus? What could be more important? Who are you bringing to Jesus? God has given you life so you can magnify the greatness of Jesus Christ in your life so that by your life you will show that you truly believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and Savior of sinners, that he is your life, your treasure, your reason for living. Do not be content with your own salvation. You may believe that Jesus is the Christ. You may be right about Jesus. But what about your parents? What about your children? What about your brothers and sisters? What about your neighbors, people who live right next door to you? What about your coworkers, people you work with every day? What about your classmates? What about your teammates? You cannot be content with your own salvation. You cannot desire that anyone would be lost. So I say, what about your enemies, people you don't like? can't desire that anyone would be wrong about Jesus, that anyone would be lost. It's not the heart of God. Pastor Rogers referred to Ezekiel this morning, and I'll do so also. Ezekiel 18, 23, and 32. You can check it out when you get home. But God, through his prophet, says in this passage, he says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his wicked way and live. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. So turn and live. That is the heart of God. In 2 Peter 3, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing any to perish, but that all should reach repentance. In 1 Timothy 2, we're told that God, our, desi- our, God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And in Romans 9, Paul writes that he could wish himself to be separated from God for the sake of his brethren. Do we have God's heart for the lost? Who are we bringing to Jesus? We may be right about Jesus. We may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And if so, we give thanks to God for his mercy. And we strive to tell others about the only Savior, the only hope. Well, if this is so important, how can we make sure that we are right about Jesus? It only happens by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. So the third thing John tells us is we need to be guided by the Word and the Spirit. Verse 24, he says, See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. And what is it that we have heard from the beginning? What they heard from the beginning was the preaching of the apostles. So what did the apostles preach? Paul said in 2 Corinthians, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Ron Shea used to always quote 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and Ron Shea was a man who had a passion for the lost. He was giving his life to bring people to Jesus. And we need more people 
like Ron Shea, but he used to always quote 1 Corinthians 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're told to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended from David, fully God, fully man. It's what John has been teaching throughout his letter, that God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all, and we are not. We are filled with sin, and if we claim to be without sin, if we claim to be good enough, good enough on our own, if we say we don't need a Savior, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But the good news is that if we confess our sins, if we admit our need for a Savior, God will forgive us. This is because his own son, Jesus, died in our place. He died for us. He was put to death for our sins. The atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then God raised him back to life for our justification to make us right with God. So now all who believe in God have one who speaks to the Father on our defense. And because he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, it means that there is now no record of our sins anywhere in the universe. And we have fellowship with the Father. This is amazing. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. How important is the gospel? This word that they've heard from the beginning. Verse 24 of 1 John 2, 25 says, This is what he promised us, even eternal life. It's a matter of life and death, eternal life and death. This is the message that is to remain in you. But we ask, how will it happen? If this is so important, how does it happen? And it doesn't just happen naturally. It's not automatic. It's something that we have to be diligent in, something that we have to work in, something that we have to ensure will happen. So I'd like to share with you a few ideas of how we can make sure that what we've heard from the beginning remains in us. Now these are just some ideas. You don't have to do any of these ideas, but you could come up with some of your own. You do need to do something because we are commanded here by God's word that we see what we've heard from the beginning remains in us. So first of all, you need to see the importance of it. And hopefully we've established that point, that the gospel The truth about Jesus Christ, the word of God, is so important, it needs to remain in us. Secondly, we need to be in the word of God every day. It is that important that we are in the word of God on our own every day. You might not think it's that important. If that's the case, I would just encourage you to write down what you do in a day. And at the end of the day, read that list and read off the things that are more important than seeing that the word of God remains in you. So we need to be in the word of God on our own. If you average eight hours of sleep a night, that means you have 112 awake hours during the week. If you're in church maybe two, three hours a week, that's less than 2% of your awake time. And if you get less than eight hours of sleep a night, which many of you probably do, that means it's even less than, less than 2%. Being in church is not enough. It is a great start, but it is not enough. 2% is hardly anything. And the rest of the week, 
The Pied Piper is screaming his song to lead you astray. What are you doing to guard against it? We need to be in the Word. We can turn to the Old Testament again. In Ezra, there's a great example for us. In Ezra chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, speaking of Ezra, it says, For the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees in Israel. That's the pattern set for us. Study the word of God, obey the word of God, teach the word of God. And it's not just the pattern for prophets, pastors, teachers. Turn to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, and it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. Does the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Is that how you would describe it? And, this is, and then not only is it to dwell in you richly, but you are to teach others. That's not for me as a pastor. That's for you as a people, to teach others. That's why every Wednesday night at youth group, we have a student uh, share something they've learned from the Word of God lately. We do like a five-minute interview, ask them some questions so the kids can get to know them a little bit better, and then they share something that they have learned from the Word of God. Why do we do that? There's a couple of reasons that we do that, but one of them is because we want to encourage them to be in the Word of God. And another one is we want them to see it as natural and normal for them to talk about what they are learning with other believers, with other people. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus answered the devil in his temptation, man does, not word, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you believe that? Is that true? Is that represented in your life? I would also encourage you to tell others. I just mentioned that we are to teach others. I would encourage you to tell other people about the good news of Jesus Christ. Tell your children. Tell your grandchildren. Tell your neighbors. Tell your co-workers. At the end of last year, as I was thinking about resolutions, one of the ones that I thought about doing was every day trying to tell somebody something that I loved about Jesus Christ. And really the point was to... Look at what Christ has done for me and done for his people and see his character and see how he is precious to those who believe and to share that with people. And and I have not been doing that. I failed miserably at that. But when I have done it, what I have uh, appreciated about it and what I, why I think it's a good idea for God's people to do is because it forced me, as I was reading the Bible, you know what it forced me to do? It forced me to look for the gospel in every line of scripture. Where do I see Christ in the scripture? Where do I see that he is precious to me? And then once I saw that, it forced me to meditate on how can I communicate that to other people? And that was a very healthy practice. It's one that I I ought to do. I encourage you to do. I don't believe that you would regret it. And other people would hear the gospel. You'd be the Pied Piper singing the true song in the midst of the Antichrist singing the lie. We need to be in the Word and teaching the Word. Not only do we need to be guided by the Word, but we also need to be guided by the Spirit. So how do we know the truth of God's Word? How do we know the truth of Jesus Christ? You know, it's a gift to know the truth of Jesus Christ. We don't know it because we're smarter than other people. We don't know it because we're better than other people. We don't know it because we're more holy than other people. We know it because of the grace and mercy of God through the Holy Spirit has opened our blind eyes given life to our dead souls. Verse 27 says his anointing teaches you. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel of John, we're told that the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. 
that he teaches us all things. We need the Holy Spirit to understand the truth. And the good news is, we have the Holy Spirit. He will guide us into the truth as we read his word. John Stott said, Some honor the word and neglect the spirit who alone can interpret it. Others honor the spirit but neglect the word out of which he teaches. The only safeguard against lies is to have remaining within us both the word that we heard from the beginning and the anointing that we received from him. We need to be guided by both the word and the spirit. We are in the last days. It is the last hour. The music of the Antichrist is playing. It's all around you. It's in surround sound. It's never off. And it's trying to lead you astray. It's trying to lead your children astray. It's trying to lead your grandchildren astray. It's a song that ends in death. An eternal destruction. How will you guard against it? How will you guard your children against it? This is a real battle that we face every day. You must be aware. The Antichrist is here. The spirit of the Antichrist is here. You must be right about Jesus. Believe on Jesus as he's offered in the gospel. Not according to men, according to God himself. You must be guided by the word and the spirit. Well, beloved, what song are you playing? What song are we, as a church community, playing for our neighbors, for our children? May we play the song of the gospel. May we trumpet the glorious news of Jesus Christ. And may we do it from a heart of love and a life of service. For all to hear that the name of Jesus Christ may be praised and honored and cherished among men. That people may believe that Jesus is the Christ... And that by believing, they may have life in his name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you for your truth and for your spirit. For how you have revealed yourself to us through your son and through your word. We ask that your spirit would apply the truth of your word to our hearts tonight. We pray for any who do not know you that your spirit would breathe life into them and call them to yourself. We pray for those who already do know you, for, for myself, for all here, Lord, who have come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. May you deepen our love for your son and may you give us your heart of compassion for people. Give us courage and boldness to proclaim the gospel as we ought to and may we see your transforming power at work as you bring your children home. We pray this for the sake of your name and your kingdom and your glory. Amen.